Will you pray with me? Lord, we know that you are Emmanuel, the God that is with us. And each of us has experienced this truth in varying level. Few of us have experienced this in the midst of our own pending death. So we lift up our brothers and sisters in Burkina Faso who have faced this kind of persecution, threat to their lives by terrorists. Give them endurance and reassurance of your eternal love. Give us courage to trust in you when confronted with trial. May our faith in you not waver as the enemy attacks. May your word today convict by your spirit and renew our minds so that we are unified with your will. You have and continue to do miraculous works, those things that are impossible for us to accomplish. And in our text today, you have saved three men from an execution by fire, three men who would not worship a false idol. You also humbled the most powerful man at that time. And for us, you have conquered sin and death. You brought not only salvation to humanity, but have turned the hearts of your enemies into those that are your beloved. You have brought us a freedom and a peace that no one else can give. Your love has no end, and nothing can overcome you. We are in awe of your strength, your faithfulness, your power, your righteousness, and your justice. Help us to grow in our resilience upon you, our reliance upon you, that we will proclaim you as Lord and no other, that no other is capable or worthy. Praise be to God that is with his people. Glory and honor be given to you for eternity. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pat. You can have a seat. And you can open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We covered the first half two weeks ago. Then we were so rudely interrupted by the ice storm. And now we're going to get back into the second half. Have any of you ever been fearful about an upcoming experience and then gone through with it only to find out that you need not fear it in the first place? Maybe it was a performance or a speaking engagement. Maybe it was leading your congregation in a cappella worship. Maybe it was a medical procedure or some form of adrenaline junkie experience. My wife and I had an adrenaline junkie experience back in November of 2007. At the urging of a close friend, we <clears throat> decided to go bungee jumping. Now, I know many of you want to make the joke about, did you find a bridge tall enough that you didn't hit your head, Hans, right? Haha. -ha. Uh, but... It was an abandoned bridge above a deep ravine with a river running through it near Mount St. Helens. And here's a picture of what it looked like. It was, I think, about 300 feet in the air. You had to climb over the barrier bars on the side that are meant to keep you on the bridge. You had to climb over those and get onto this little tiny ledge that had a width. Uh, it was about three-quarters the length of my shoe, so my shoe was over the edge. And the first jump, we had to swan dive. Now, I will admit to you that I was extremely nervous and scared, and you can see proof of that 
in the pit stain that goes from my elbow to my knee, right there. <laughs> but after I screamed almost the entire way down and then was raised back up to the ledge, I was able to regain my composure for the second dive, which was backwards, and realized that fear had far less power over me. Yes, that was me before I had a beard. Now, my wife, well, she is just more courageous than I after being a two-time cancer survivor. Uh, she just, you know, dove into it with everything she had. Now, she wants me to tell you that they made you point like that, which they did, but I actually think she was just being Pentecostal. <laughs> now, because she'll kill me, I'm going to move back to a different slide here. There we go. In that experience of the second jump, I was able for just a brief moment to experience what it was to be truly free from fear. Fear is a reaction that is core to the human experience. It's the result of what I call trauma outside the garden. We were created to be in safety, in immediate provision, and the loving connection of the Garden of Eden. And yet, due to the sin in our first parents, we find ourselves striving and toiling in the wilderness of a life without the immediate presence of God. We're hiding from one another. We harm one another. Without readily available access to the source of life, we go about life convinced of the lie that we are invincible until we are confronted with our mortality, and then fear sets in. Be it a pandemic, a sickness, the loss of a loved one, we see death become a possibility, and we become fearful. But I think the desire of God expressed in his word is that by his spirit, we would grasp the truth that even death has no power over, over those who are in him. And as we look at the remainder of Daniel chapter 3 this morning, we'll see our three main characters, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, exhibit a freedom from fear and a trust in God that could truly only come from God by his spirit. For they will not simply be free from fear because of an experience like I was on that bungee jumping bridge, but they will illustrate for us what it is to be free of fear because they trust in the Lord. And so I've entitled this sermon this morning, Freedom That Comes From Trusting the Most High God. Freedom that comes from trusting the Most High God. As a reminder of the context, we'll begin in Daniel 3.1 and read the entirety of the story this morning, all the way through the end of chapter 3. And remember that what is happening here is Nebuchadnezzar is doing two things. One, he's calling for worship to this idol that he has built. And two, he's doing it as a request for an oath of loyalty from the leaders of his nation. So let's, read, uh, let's begin reading in Daniel 3.1, and we'll go all the way through verse 30. It says there, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
And the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are their Babylonian names. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these three men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We paused there uh, two weeks ago, gave the context and the understanding of idolatry, but let's continue now in verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. Uh, And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent, and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yield up their bodies rather than serve and worship 
any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, picking up where we left off last week, the first thing that we see in our story is this. Nebuchadnezzar was overcome by the idolatry he promoted. Nebuchadnezzar was overcome by the idolatry he promoted. Two Sundays ago, we examined three points. The first two were that Nebuchadnezzar set up a false god in his image and desired that all worship it. The second was that we need to be careful because in exile, we can quickly become prey to the idolatry that surrounds us. I reminded you of the idea that the entire purpose of mankind is to reflect the character and law of the one who formed us, to be his image bearers. That is your purpose in life. We are the thing formed meant to reflect the one who formed us. We say that again. We are the thing formed meant to reflect the one who formed us. But in sin and out of a desire to usurp God's authority and position, we flipped that created order on its head and began creating our own idols that instead reflect us. We convince ourselves, even subconsciously, that in practicing idolatry, we are the ones who are in control. We are the ones who are in power. But that is a lie that the spiritual powers behind the idolatry want us to believe. So they tell us. You see, the Bible is clear that if we act within the created order as the image bearers of God, the power behind us is the one true God, Yahweh, the one that Nebuchadnezzar calls the Most High God. And in this God's benevolence and love, our God has the power over us to guide us by his wisdom. But if we act in idolatry, we are actually enslaved to and under the power of spiritual adversaries of God. And friends, this can happen even if you're a Christian. One of the mistakes I see in, in uh, new believers is that they think, well, now that I'm a Christian, I'll just do whatever I want because the Holy Spirit's in me, and so I must be doing what the Holy Spirit wants. But friends, this is why Paul explicitly stated that we are in constant battle between the fleshly desires of our bodies and what the Holy Spirit is guiding us to. And so we must realize that it is constant warfare every day, and if we take a step back, the enemy does not. Remember that there were created spiritual beings that the Old Testament refers to as gods. Not capital G, God, like we worship, but lowercase, small g, gods. And these were angelic beings that rebelled against the order of God and are labeled in our Western vernacular, demons. That's what we're used to calling them. The Hebrew word for them has connotations of being swelled up with pride and being rebellious and bent on destruction. And the Bible is clear that when we engage in worship of idols, we are worshiping a created thing, behind which is the backing of a demonic entity that is drawing us into an act of warfare against our creator. Look at some text with me, the context of which you can read on your own for greater clarity, but these will help kind of give you an understanding of where I'm coming from. First, look with me at Deuteronomy 32, 7 through 9 on the screen, it says, Remember the days of old, and consider the years of many generations. Ask your father, and he will show you, your elders, and they will tell you. 
when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, meaning their land and their nation. When he divided up mankind, okay, Bible scholars, when was it that God divided up mankind into different languages and nations? Babel, very good, the Tower of Babel, okay? When he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So what you have here is you have these divine demonic beings that are given control over the various nation states and governmental powers, and then you have God himself, Yahweh, taking for his own inheritance just the nation of Israel, okay? Now, this is any nation, folks, even our own. Any nation that is not in soul worship of Yahweh God is a nation that has behind it the backing of a demonic spiritual power. How do we know this? We can easily go to where Satan tempts Jesus and says, I'll give you all the nations of the world. How does Satan have control of all the nations of the world? Because his minions are the powers behind them, okay? So we'll look at this more in later portions of Daniel, but at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, God divided mankind according to language and nationality. And the way he fixed their borders was that their nation states were attached to the number of rebellious spiritual beings. This is why nation states battle against each other, okay? But the Lord Yahweh took Israel as his people, and so entire nation states were given to demonic beings to build their own worship and idolatry. But Israel did not stay true to Yahweh alone and entered into unholy relationships with these idols and these nations and the backing demonic entities. Look at what Deuteronomy 32, 15 through 18, just a few verses later says, but Jeshurun, which is a nickname for Israel, grew fat and kicked, kind of kicked against the goads, rebelled. Uh, you grew fat, stout, and sleek. Then Israel forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. So his people thought they were worshiping Yahweh, but then brought in these other things that got their time, talents, and treasure and all their energy, right? And they thought they were still worshiping Yahweh, but they weren't. This is from... Psalm 106, verses 34 through 38. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. And guys, this is, this is literal. This isn't uh, figurative. They used to take brand new newborn babies and they would take the, the metal idols that they had with, that had arms outstretched and they'd heat the arms incandescently and place the babies on them to hear the babies scream and die. This is why God said, go destroy these evil nations. They're doing terrible things, okay? And so this is how far idolatry had gotten. And Marduk, Ishtar, Baal, Astarte, these are all the names of the false gods that we hear in the Bible that were idolized by the nations and eventually Israel. But they represent earthly created things like fertility and storms, success, sexuality and warfare, things that are still turned into idols and gods today. Behind all of these 
are false gods who are really just demonic beings. And Paul reminds the church of Corinth of this same truth in 1 Corinthians 10. We get a New Testament view of it. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 20 through 21, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. The Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles warn God's true people to beware of falling to idolatry because it will overcome you and you will become enslaved to it. And friends, the deepest idols in our lives are the ones that we are blinded by. We don't even know we have them and we justify them. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was the one in control of the idol that he had created. He thought he was the one with power and control, but as we're learning, idols actually overpower us. Notice that this is what happened to him. It's interesting in the wording of the chapter, something that we don't see in the English, but you guys remember from two weeks ago the word tselem. You guys remember that? Can you guys say tselem? Tselem is the word for image or idol that's used in Genesis 1 that God said, let us create man in our image, Okay. That word is used elsewhere and is used, the majority of the usages are to refer to man-made idols or images. And here in Daniel, what's interesting is that that word or the Aramaic version of it is used 11 times in Daniel 3, 11 times. Every place where you see image is that word Salem or the Aramaic version of it. Aramaic is very similar to Hebrew. It's in verse 1, verse 2, twice in verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, and verse 18. Now think with me for a second about how this story was originally given. It was spoken out loud. That's why there's all the lists. And throughout the telling, the hearers would have heard this word, Salem, over and over again, 11 times. But then interestingly, it's used one more time in chapter 3, but our English translation does not catch the repetition well. The original hearers would have been intended to hear it 11 times, and then this odd time where it stands out. It's in verse 19. Take a look there with me. It's used one more time. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression or image, some of your translations say, of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Behind the word expression is the word Selem again, the form or image of his face. It changed into animalistic rage and fury. He was out of control. He binds the Hebrews and orders the fire to burn hotter, and it becomes so destructive that it devours even some of his own loyal guards as they throw in the three Hebrew youths, which does not seem to even phase Nebuchadnezzar. Behind the actions of Nebuchadnezzar and the God that he is propping up in idolatry is a demonic force that is attempting to undo God's just judgment at Babel that dispersed the nations because of their idolatry. Notice that he's calling back all nations, all languages, to worship the one false God. He's undoing Babel. It's a war against God's just judgment. And due to his idolatry, Nebuchadnezzar became completely out of control and simply became a pawn used by the spiritual rebels attempting to undo, to a limited extent, the authority of God in the division of the people. In Daniel 3, verses 1 through 7, the author paints a picture of every people, nation, and language falling down and worshiping this man-made idol. 
It is the Antichrist version of what we read in the book of Philippians, that when Jesus returns, every knee will bow from every nation, tribe, and language. It's the Antichrist version of what we see in Revelation before the throne of God as every nation, language, and people bows down. And so what we see here, folks, is not just a worship service or an oath of loyalty. We see an epic battle of spiritual warfare in which the people involved have no clue that they are being manipulated like puppets to cause destruction and rebellion against the true creator God. As for Nebuchadnezzar, his image that he thought he had built had actually overcome him, and he was now twisted to image it. Tremper Longman, a scholar uh, on the topic of Daniel, in his commentary on this section says, the one who in his pride has created an image with the purpose of assuring uniform loyalty, finds his own image provoked beyond his control. Friends, Nebuchadnezzar was overcome by the idolatry he promoted. If we are not aware of and an active battle with our idols, they will overcome us and cause us to be driven not by the wisdom and spirit of God, but by our own earthly instincts that lie to us. This is why it is often hard for us to recognize our own idols because they make sense to us. Now, many of you, uh, it was awesome, the last two weeks have shared with me the idols that you were convicted of worshiping two weeks ago. But this week, I want to encourage you to go even deeper with that. I want to encourage you to bravely ask those you love and trust around you to help you see any idols you might be blind to in your own lives. And I want to encourage you and challenge you to receive their answers with openness and humility. What idols do you have that you might be blind to? Now, immediately, you can tell where your heart is on this, because if you're going, oh, yeah, this is one of those application points I can kind of just, nah. Well, then you know that you have an idol that you're protecting. But if you ask those who know you well, and you receive with wisdom and humility what they say, then you know that your heart is soft. Nebuchadnezzar and those bowing down were overcome with idolatry. But even in the midst of that environment, the three Hebrew youths stand firm in their faith, something that we so desperately need to do right now. And that's what we see next in our text this morning, is that the three Hebrew men were set free by their allegiance to and trust in the Lord. They were set free by their allegiance to and trust in the Lord. Last week, our third point was that in Jesus, by his spirit, God has set us free from the enslavement of idolatry. And this week, we continue to look at that truth in more depth, and what we see is the freedom of these three young men. Look at their statement to King Nebuchadnezzar in verses 16 through 18. We see three parts to their statement. The first part is a statement of submission, a statement of submission. They say, we have no need to answer you in this matter of serving your gods or worshiping the golden image. Now, this is a bold statement. They could be assured of this statement because there is no ambiguity, no cloudiness on the topic of whether or not the people of Yahweh are to bow down to an idol. There is no debate on this. They made clear in this statement their their authority was Yahweh and him alone. So when Nebuchadnezzar tried to claim authority over an area in which Nebuchadnezzar had no authority, they stood firm and they said, 
No. Now, let's take that and apply it to the elephant in the room of this last year. This last year has been a difficult one to lead this church. Our elder team has done our best to balance the mandate of Scripture to have no other authority than God with the mandate of Scripture to respect the authority of the civil government. And we thank all of you who have helped us work through the balance and have put aside your own emotions and opinions in sacrifice to love the people of this church and to show a respect of authority to both God and the government that he has put in place. And we're going to continue to try and balance these as we begin moving restrictions slowly but surely, as I shared with you earlier. But dear friends, as we look to the future, we must ask the Lord for strength and wisdom to stay true to his word as the world is pressing more and more on topics that the church holds dear. In other countries, legislation has already been passed that can penalize churches for preaching biblical truth on topics like marriage and sexuality. Australia just passed one very recently. As events like this occur more and more, we do not need to freak out. There's a pastor up in Canada this last week that held a church service pushing against some of the restrictions, and he is now sitting in a Canadian jail because he held a church service. More and more, the world will push against us. But we do not need to become conspiracy theorists. We do not need to react in an emotional revolt. We don't need to freak out. We simply need to stand firm in the truth that we know and will continue to proclaim from the inerrant word of God. Can I get an amen? Second, not only a statement of submission, but a statement of trust. They said, God is able to deliver us even from death. We need to be a people that trust the Lord in the same way these three men did. Now, this is a simple statement of trusting surrender. They are saying, no matter what happens, we trust God with our lives. On that day that I bungee jumped, I was putting my life in the trust of a set of rubber bungee cords. How much more should we put our trust in Christ, who died and resurrected for us? In the story of Job, when he was in that place where he had literally lost everything, including his own health, he utters these famous words in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him, yet I will argue my ways to his face. In the New King James, hope is translated trust, and Job was able to say that he could trust in God, he could trust God, no matter what befell him, and yet was able within that trust to go to God and cry out in lament that it wasn't fun. You see, friends, trust is at the core of following God and giving our lives over to him. As God's people, we act in wisdom towards the things of this world, but we ultimately put our trust in God. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 56, verses 3 and 4. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Brothers and sisters, when we are facing suffering and sickness or death, we are not to put the Lord to the test by being cavalier or foolish, but we are also not to be afraid. Friends, when it comes to all that we've experienced in the last year, do you trust God with your mortality, with your very life? Do you trust him with that of your family? Do you trust God with this church, 
Do you trust God with this nation? Do you trust God and his providence? Can you say, along with Job, even if he decides that it is time for me to die, I trust his judgment? Or are we trusting in something else? Friends, when it comes to the pandemic, are you trusting in God and being wise? Or have you put all your trust in the restrictions? What do your actions right now show the world around you? That your trust is in the Lord or in something else? Well, third, not just a statement of submission and a statement of trust, but a statement of allegiance. But if not, they say, if God doesn't save us, we will not serve your gods anyway. This is the second half of the statement of trust. Their allegiance is to Yahweh alone and no other gods, and their allegiance is based not on current circumstances in their lives, but on the whole of God's faithfulness to his people. Now, did the three men have a logical reason to complain to God? What do you guys think, yes or no? Yes, absolutely. Exile, assimilation, manipulation, abuse, and now even possibly death by fire. They had a reason to complain, but looking at the history of mankind and especially of their own people's faithfulness towards God, or their own people's faithlessness towards God, faithlessness towards God, they realized that God's power and wisdom was larger than what they could see with their own eyes and their own myopic viewpoint. And so they trusted him by giving their full allegiance to him. This is what it is to give your life over to Christ in surrender as Lord. We respond to his gracious gift of eternal life with submission to his authority. We trust in his providence and his sovereign will and allegiance to his covenant faithfulness. These men trusted God no matter the circumstances, even in spite of their circumstances. They knew even in the face of personal harm that even though it did not look like God was in control, that he was indeed in control. As their Israelite brothers and sisters sat in exile and as future generations would be persecuted under pagan Gentile rule, this truth is what held them strong in the midst of suffering. In spite of present circumstances, God is working out his plan. Do you believe this? Do you believe that this is true? Do you believe that in spite of all that seems out of control around us, that God is actually in control? Now, you might say, I even asked this question over the last year, how on earth could these guys trust that God was in control when everything was going so badly? Does anybody else ever feel that way? How on earth is God in control when things are going so badly? But friends, when we ask that question, we reveal our hearts. I reveal my heart that I am actually the God who's deciding what is good and what is evil. I think this text shows us that they were able to step out of their immediate surroundings and focus on something else entirely. These men could trust God because of the character that he had shown historically in the midst of his people. Because we are finite, temporal people, our ability to see clearly in the moment is so often clouded by our own emotions and inclinations and motivations and by the very minuscule amount of information we can sense ourselves. That's one of the reasons, friends, that we are so graced by the word of God. It's beyond reason that we could be given the word of God that spans cultures, spans generations and time, and gives us a far wider worldview. 
The Bible speaks of a God that is a creator and redeemer who is just and righteous. And the narrative throughout his book is that he is good and has a good plan for his people, even if it doesn't make sense in the moment. And quite honestly, even if it ends in our mortal death. The God that these three men served is the one and only true God, and he had given them warning of the very situation in which they found themselves. And even within this warning, he showed them his character. Turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Look at verse 15. Give me an amen if you're there. Deuteronomy 4.15, Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. It's a good word for us this morning. Since you saw no form on that day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole of heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day. God, through Moses, warned the people of Israel that they would be tempted to fall into the same trap as Nebuchadnezzar, drifting toward idolatry, but that instead they needed to remind themselves of who God is and how he has acted time and time again on their behalf, even when circumstances seem to show otherwise. Friends, I think even in our own small lives, we can see this. We can look back and say, God has never failed me. It may not have gone the way I wanted it to go, but he never has failed me as I now look back and understand what's going on. God has never failed us, even when circumstances show otherwise. I wonder if as those men stood and looked at the fiery furnace being built again and again, that maybe, possibly, We don't know, but maybe this phrase from Deuteronomy went through their mind. God saved our people from the fiery furnace. Maybe he'll do it again. He had saved his people out of the metal smelting furnace once before, and now he would do it again. But even if not, their one experience did not overthrow the truth of God's nature. Friends, your one experience, my one experience of trial or suffering does not remove the truth that God is good and in his sovereignty he is working out the cosmos for his glory and the good of his people. With this truth established, these men willingly give their lives over to trust in God. They're able to do so because they know that no matter what happens to their bodies, God is the one who ultimately is to be obeyed. So they give themselves over to the earthly authorities, knowing the paradox that this world is not yet fully in the power of God, and yet also is completely under his sovereignty. Recall the words with me of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Nebuchadnezzar makes the false statement that he is the one with the power. 
that he is the one whose hand is the final judgment. But actions prove otherwise, and he admits it by the end of the story. He knows who the one true God is. Look with me at Deuteronomy 32, 39 on the board. God declares this, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill, and I make alive. I wound, and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Friends, when we give ourselves over to God in this way, we find ourselves more free than ever before. I don't doubt that the author intended back in Daniel, if you'll turn back there with me, The author intended back in Daniel this intended allegorical imagery when we see the men in verse 23 bound, being thrown into the fire bound, and yet in verses 24 and 25, what does Nebuchadnezzar see? He's astonished that those same men that were bound are now walking around in the fire unbound and free. Their reliance upon Yahweh and trust in him lasted beyond their temporal mortal existence. They were able to meet even impending death and pain with an understanding that their God was greater than the evil and chaos that surrounded them. As I've been studying for the racial reconciliation class, I've been reminded time and time and time again about the Christian black church in this country that was able to withstand even the oppression and hell of slavery because they believe this truth. It's an amazing, amazing, amazing thing that we should look to and we should emulate. How on earth could you live a life under the oppression of the hand of another human that treated you so badly, even ending often in death, and yet raise your hands to Jesus with such passion because of this truth? And we who live lives of such comfort should take a page from that book and recognize that we, with our brothers and sisters of previous generations who are under far worse oppression, can cry out with that same passion. Dear friends, this needs to be recaptured within the church at large. For us to be a compelling community that attracts the lost world, we need to grapple with whether or not we have this same allegiance and this same trust. Brothers and sisters, are you able to proclaim this same truth to all the world around us, that no matter my circumstances, I will yet trust in God, even if he slay me? If not, friends, if you can't answer in the affirmative, perhaps it's time to cry out to God and ask for him to work in you by his Holy Spirit to replace your heart of fear and distrust with a heart of trusting allegiance. In suffering, dear friends, is where we see the truth of our hearts revealed. And I, for one, have needed to come to grips with the conviction that over the last year, I have attempted to wrestle control from the hands of God so that I could be in control. Like these men, it is in the face of possible death and tribulation and chaos that we see how trusting our hearts are in his providence. This pandemic has revealed so many of our hearts. And we need to ask the question, do we trust in God? Perhaps today is the day for you to admit and repent from the fact that you have lost trust in God, especially when it comes to trial and suffering. And if so, then all we need to do to rekindle this truth is to recognize the truth of God's word. In suffering, to be free, we must remember that we serve Emmanuel, God with us. 
In suffering, to be free, we must remember that we serve Emmanuel, God with us. As I noted earlier, these men knew the God whom they served. He's the God that walked with Adam in the cool of the day. He's the God who wrestled with Jacob. He's the God who visited Israel in their enslavement in Egypt and set them free from their oppressors. He's the God who appeared to Joseph to strengthen him. He's the God who does not leave his people, but instead visits them in their suffering. This is so much a part of God's character that when he wanted to give a prophetic sign of his faithfulness to the people, he declared that he would be God with us. This is from Isaiah 7:14. You're used to this at Christmas time for sure. It says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This name means God with us. Our God is not a God that is unknowable to his people, but one that graciously acts to make himself known to a people who are spiritually blind to his presence because of the original sin that dwells within us. And so, what do we see here in the text before us today? Acting with that same character, God visits our three main characters. Look at Daniel 3.25. Nebuchadnezzar says, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, there is great debate across the generations of what occurred here. The ESV renders the translation, like a son of the gods. The King James and New King James translated as son of God, and so many people will teach that this was absolutely a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, or what would be called a Christophany. Now that could be, and we don't want to dismiss it out of hand, but because Nebuchadnezzar was pagan and polytheistic, it's pretty likely that he wouldn't phrase things in the context of the Christian trinity. He was most likely just stating that this being was divine. Now, the early church father, Jerome, pointed specifically to verse 28, where Nebuchadnezzar says there was an angel. But nonetheless, even if it were just an angel, Jerome says it must point to a prefiguration or type of Jesus Christ. Whether it was pre-incarnate in Christophany or just a type of him, the author intends to show us that God is the one who is with us in our suffering. And in this way, the story points directly to the ultimate Emmanuel, Jesus the Christ. In the gospel, according to Matthew, we're told this explicitly within the message given to Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. But as Joseph considered these things, it says in Matthew 1, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took his wife. Notice what suffering and evil is noted that Jesus will save his people from. Is it discomfort? Is it tribulation? Is it a pandemic? No, it's from our sin. You see, friends, this is where the gospel is ultimately powerful. You and I and all mankind were dead in our sin. This means that we had no moral ability to know or worship God as God. 
Look at Ephesians chapter 2 on the screen. This is what it means to say we're dead in our sin. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. There's that demonic spirit, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." To understand this, imagine if you were without movement in your lower extremities and were physically unable to stand. Without the gracious hand of God, we are simply morally, similarly morally unable and incapable of knowing God. Original sin rendered us dead to righteousness, and without an external force of resurrection, no one can escape that death. There is therefore no oppressive power as strong or as great as sin. There is no suffering as destructive as that which results from sin. And so is the ultimate Emmanuel, the ultimate act of God being with his people. God the Father sent his Son in the flesh to endure the temptation of all mankind, yet without sin. And ultimately, to step fully into the fire of the wrath of God by taking on all sin that had been committed against his righteousness. For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible describes our God as a consuming fire that will eventually destroy all sin and all sinners in righteous judgment. Jesus, in his grace, stepped fully into that consuming fire of God's righteousness, became human, and in dying on the cross in our place, set us free once and for all from the destroying power of death. Then, three days later, he resurrected to prove that sin had indeed been conquered. If you are listening online or sitting here in front of me today, if you've not recognized and proclaimed your sinfulness that has separated you from God and declared your need for salvation brought by Jesus Christ on the cross, today is the day to proclaim that truth. Right where you sit, between you and the Lord, you can cry out to God and proclaim your sin and need for a Savior. And then the elders that are here today, we'd love to chat with you about what that looks like in walking in discipleship. If you're online, I'd love to talk with you at hans at missionsalem.com. That's my email. Now, if sin is our greatest oppressor, the greatest evil, and it's been destroyed, and the hope of resurrection into eternal life has been provided by the resurrection of our Lord, what more do we have to fear? What's the answer, friends? Nothing. We have nothing to fear. We can declare with the psalmist in Psalm 138, as we heard this morning, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. The fact that God was with us in the midst of our sin and came out victorious gives us the trust and confidence to stand firm in any trial, even if it should end in our physical death. Would you turn with me to Romans? It's the last place we'll look at Scripture here. Go with me to Romans and take a look at how Paul phrased this same idea. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5.
Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Read that again, folks. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Turn to the right, just slightly, to Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, the work of salvation by Jesus Christ frees us, it unbinds us from enslavement to sin and idolatry and the eternal death that we deserve. It even frees us from fear. And because of this, we can recognize that earthly sufferings are nothing in comparison. They are simply events that point us to our need of a Savior and those which strengthen our ultimate hope and trust in Him. And because of this, we can observe the three Hebrew men in our story today and realize that if Yahweh could be with them through their fiery trial, then He will be able to get us through our own as we stay submitted, trusting, and allegiant to Him. In suffering, we must remember that we serve Emmanuel, God with us. And because of this, we can stand firm in the persecution and fiery trials that we are sure to encounter and actually experience freedom that comes from trusting the Most High God. Amen? Amen. Amen.